Well, please turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. In this passage, Paul uh, teaches us, articulates for us, the two main purposes for why Christ came into this world in the flesh. So Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Hear now the word of our God. Uh, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he again write uh, this word upon our hearts. You would now turn in your order of worship to the confessional reading element. This morning we are confessing our Christian faith by using the words of Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 32, which consists of question and answers 86 and 87. Again, the reason why the catechism is broken up into Lord's Days as opposed to just question and answers is that uh, when this this catechism was was, uh, written, the church very shortly after divided it up into Lord's Day so that the, into uh, 52 Lord's Days, so that the church could go through the content of this catechism in a year time span. Uh, and so it articulates for us some of the, the, the mountain peaks of the Bible, the main Christian doctrines that we are to know and be familiar with and place our faith and trust in. So question and answers 86 and 87. As always, I will read the question if you'd please re- uh, respond by reciting the answer. Question 86 asks, Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ, without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also renewing us by his spirit into his image, so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits and that he may be praised through us. And further, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Question 87 asks, Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant ways? By no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, nor idolater, adulterer, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, boys and girls, uh, what are the three main sections of our catechism? Annabelle. 
And what uh, section are we in? Gratitude. Yes, we're transitioning today. Very good. Um, what is true faith? Violet? Knowledge, assent, and trust. And what are those things that we need to know, assent to, and trust in? Noel? The Apostles' Creed. Very good. Now, when we profess this faith, when we know and assent to and trust in these articles of the Apostles' Creed, what benefit do we receive? Yes. Christ's righteousness. Exactly. We are justified. Uh, We are made right before God, not based on our own good works, but based on the good works of Jesus Christ. Now, where does this faith come from? Micah? The Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit use? Yes, the mind definitely is. is, Did I see a hand? Yeah. The preaching of God's word. Yes. And what strengthens this faith? In addition to the preaching of God's word, Ezekiel? The sacraments. The sacraments. And, of course, uh, the Spirit works upon our minds and our hearts as well. Uh, very good. And, and there are those two sacraments, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the last time we were together, we considered the keys of the kingdom. Christ gave the keys of the kingdom to the church, meaning the church has the responsibility to preach the gospel as well as to exercise church discipline. Meaning, uh, to put it another way, the church has the authority to affirm and disaffirm one's profession of faith. Again, they're not making um, de facto declarations, but they're recognizing the fruit of, of people's profession of faith, affirming and disaffirming. Again, so you see how faith functions at that structuring device throughout the grace section. What is faith? What is the content of faith? What is the benefit of faith? Where does faith come from? And then the church's authority to affirm one's profession of faith uh, through the keys of the kingdom. We'll see here in question 86. Question 86 essentially summarizes the entire catechism up until this point. So look with me at the beginning part of question 86. Since we have been delivered... From our misery, by grace, through Christ, without any merit of our own. The catechism is summarizing the guilt section when it talks about how we we have misery. We are born into this, this fallen, miserable condition. And the catechism told us, instructed us months ago now, that in this natural fallen condition, we are totally unable to do any good and are prone always to all evil. That's who we are in our natural fallen condition. But we know that God has made a provision uh, for us to save us from this state of misery through the God-man. Christ, who is both God and man, was perfectly suited to deliver us from the severe wrath of God that we had earned because of our sin, our transgressions. And so when we profess faith in this this Son of God, in in Jesus Christ, uh, we confess in question answer 60 that God imputes or credits to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if we had uh, never sinned nor had been a sinner 
and as if we had perfectly obeyed as Christ has obeyed for us. That's justification. We are saved not by our own good works, but by the good works of Jesus Christ. And so you see, that's, that's summarized here in the beginning half of question 86. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, summarizing the guilt and grace sections of, of the catechism. But question 86 answers, asks a very important and relevant question. If these things are true, these things that we have been, been considering week after week, if these things are true, why then should we do good works? If we embrace the doctrine of free justification by grace uh, through Christ, we need to wrestle with this question of why should we do good works? Think about your ordinary life and how often you are motivated to do good, to pursue excellence because there is a reward if you do good and there is the threat of negative consequences if you don't do good. We're constantly motivated with the fear of punishment and the promise of reward. Uh, think about your job. Think about school. Um, kids, you probably have uh, somewhat of this structure just in your home. You are motivated to obey your parents, at least to some degree, because you know that life's probably going to go better for you, and there are threats of negative consequences when you disobey. Uh, our life is filled with, with, with the motivation of fear and the, the motivation of the promise of reward. Well, if what we believe and confess here is true, then that motivation of fear can't be a credible motivation for good works because we've been delivered from the wrath of God. The motivation of this promise of, of salvation can't be our motivation because we already have salvation by grace through Christ. And so what then motivates us to do good? This is, are there motivations to do good? Uh, you know, people who, who heard the Apostles Paul teach upon the doctrine of justification, uh, wrestled with this question. In Romans chapter 6, uh, Paul anticipates an objection that he no doubt heard as he taught upon uh, this glorious doctrine of justification when he says, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? The Reformation also had to respond to this objection. The main objection that the Roman Catholic Church posited against the Protestant Reformation is that if you preach this, that is the doctrine of free justification in the churches, people are going to live like pigs. There's going to be no motivation to fight against vice and pursue virtue if people are freely saved, not by their good works, but by the good works of Jesus Christ. And so this is a, a, a question that we need to wrestle with if what we previously confessed is true. Now, this question of why then should we do good works is, a, in one sense, a theoretical question. It's a question that has uh, tickled the minds of many philosophers and theologians. Why should we do good works? But this question is a very practical and experiential question. This is a question that you face every single day of the Christian life whether you are conscious of it or not. Whenever you are at that crossroads where you know what the right thing to do, 
uh, what the right thing to do is, but you are tempted with the allurement of sin, the enticing nature of sin, and you're at that crossroads and you're thinking to yourself, why shouldn't I give in to this sin if I'm already saved, if I'm secure? Why should I be motivated to go against the desires of my flesh and, and choose the good when it's very difficult to do so? If there is no fear of punishment or motivation of, of inheriting salvation through my own efforts. We face this. We face this as we fight against our own sin on a daily basis. And therefore, it's a very, very relevant and practical question. Why should we do good works? And as I've already said, this question transitions us now to the third main section of the catechism, which is gratitude. Uh, in these first few Lord's Days, we'll, ta- uh, we'll unpack the nature of, of our motivation in this life of gratitude, the nature of good works, and then we will walk through an exposition of the Ten Commandments as well as the Lord's Prayer as sort of the, uh, the main elements of this life of gratitude, obedience to God's moral law and a life of, of prayer that's, that follows the template of the Lord's Prayer. Well, you'll notice in question 86 that the Catechism gives us five motivations Five motivations for why we should do good works. And the fear of punishment or uh, the, the promise of inheriting, our, uh, inheriting uh, salvation through our good works are not included. Those are not credible motivations. And so what I'd like us to do is to briefly think about these motivations that the Catechism gives us. So the first motivation that we have for doing good works in, in the Christian life is that this promise that Christ is sanctifying us. So, so notice what question and answer 86 says there at the beginning. Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also renewing us by his spirit into his image. So notice who is doing this renewal. It's Christ through his spirit. Christ through his spirit is the one who sanctifies us. Sanctification is God's work. Now sanctification refers to that that transformation of our inward being to reflect more and more the holy character of our God. And it differs um, from justification which is that forensic declaration in God's courtroom based on the performance of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Now, sanctification, which is that inward renewal of our inner man, is a a work of God, a work of God through his spirit. One theologian said that God is just as responsible for our sanctification as he is for our justification. You might not always think of it that way. Sometimes we can think of justification, oh, that's God's work, and then this life of sanctification, of good works, that's up to us. Uh, But God is just as active in our sanctification as he is in our justification. 
Now, you'll notice in Titus 2, the, the passage that we read a few moments ago, Paul articulates these two purposes for Christ's coming. So we read in Titus 2.11 that Christ came bringing salvation for all of God's people. Justification. But then he continues and he says Christ also came or the grace of God has appeared in the form of Jesus Christ training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Christ's mission for his people is not just to justify us, but also to train us, to train us to put off that old man, the works of the flesh, and to live self-controlled, godly lives in this age. And we see this twofold purpose also in verse 14 of Titus chapter 2, where we see that, that uh, this... Um, our Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Again, think justification. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, zealous for good works. So Jesus came and he did what he did in his, in his, his, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and session at the uh, right hand of God in order to make you zealous for good works. That's what Paul says in Titus chapter 2. We also hear of a similar uh, truth in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2 chapter 10, Paul says that, uh, that God has uh, foreordained uh, the good works that you will walk in. God has prepared and foreordained your good works. God is the author of your good works and will cause you to walk in every single one of them. Or you think of Philippians chapter 1-6 when Paul is speaking to this beloved congregation that he planted in Acts chapter 16 and he says that he is convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, when you hear this, you may think, huh, how is this a motivation? <laughs> Wouldn't this make us slothful and lazy in our pursuit of sanctification and good works, knowing that, that, uh, that God is the author of our good works, God is the author of our sanctification? Uh, Wouldn't this make us just let go and let God? No, not at all. The reason why the catechism includes this as a motivation is because it actually does the opposite. Knowing that God is the author of our good works and our sanctification makes us zealous for good works because we know that good works are actually possible for us. Sanctification is actually possible for us because God is the author of these things. If it was completely up to us, uh, these things would not be possible. But because God is the author of these things, uh, they're possible. It's sort of analogous to the issue of God's sovereignty and evangelism. Sometimes when, when we hear about God's sovereignty, one of the, the criticisms is, well, why would we share the gospel with anybody if God is sovereign over all things? Well, actually, God's sovereignty motivates evangelism because we know that evangelism will actually be fruitful because he has an elect that he will bring into the kingdom. 
And God ordains not only the ends, but the means to that end. And the means to the end of bringing the elect into the kingdom is the preaching of the gospel. In a similar way, God not only ordains the end of the moral life, meaning these good works that are produced, but the means to that end, and the means to the end of good works is your effort. Effort. And we are called to put effort into this life of sanctification, knowing and resting and trusting that God is the author of our moral life this renewal, this transformation within us. And so God, God is the author of our sanctification. Christ sanctifies us through his spirit. Well, what's the next motivation that we learn about in question answer 86? Gratitude, yes. And that's the, this is the one that, sort of gets a lot of the air time from question answer 86, uh, gratitude. This is the motivation that serves as sort of the heading for this entire section. And gratitude really stands in opposition to fear. Uh, those are really kind of the two main <laughs> options when it comes to, to this life of service. Are you motivated by fear? Or are you motivated by gratitude? Now, boys and girls, imagine uh, someone gives you uh, an unexpected and a gift that is something that, that you really, really like. It's something that you may not have even asked for because you, you never thought you would get it. It just blows your expectations. What's your response going to be? You're probably going to be overjoyed. You're probably going to desire to express gratitude to the giver. That's the intuitive response we have when someone is, is over-the-top generous to us. And generally speaking, our gratitude is proportionate to the value of the gift. If someone gives you just a little trinket, you might say thank you, but you're not going to be over the top brimming with gratitude. But if someone gives you this, this very expensive, generous gift, you'll be over the top brimming with gratitude. And so when it comes to the Christian life, uh, here we learn that gratitude serves as, well, as uh, one of the chief motivations for us. And the way that, that gratitude works in the Christian life is, um, you know, we, it's when we, we remember and acknowledge that we are freely justified by God. So we know that we are loved when we are accepted. And because of this firm confidence and trust and this free justification, we desire to obey our God, right? We're zealous to obey our God. But when fear serves as our motivation, uh, we say to ourselves, I'm conditionally loved and therefore I better obey. See, see the difference? The first scenario, uh, when gratitude serves as our motivation, we say I'm loved and accepted and therefore I desire to obey my God. Just like when you receive a gift, Generally speaking, it's just your intuitive response to express gratitude. But when fear is our motivation, we say, I'm conditionally loved, and therefore I better, I better obey. And the motivation for that obedience is really self-centered. It's so that I may not be punished. The eyes of our heart are inwardly focused upon ourselves. Now we see gratitude serving as a motivation in, in many of Paul's epistles. In fact, Paul uses this paradigm of, of responding to the grace of the gospel by gratefully serving our God. Uh, he uses this as a structuring device in many, many of his epistles. For instance, Romans, which is structured around uh, 
guilt, grace, and gratitude, the last five chapters of the book of Romans are all devoted to our life of grateful service in response to the gospel. So Romans 12 verse 1 uh, Paul transitions to this gratitude section in the book of Romans, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable service or worship. Meaning it's reasonable to, to, to give of our whole selves to God in light of the mercies that we have received in Christ. It's reasonable. Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, there are no commands, no imperatives. It's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the last three chapters are all about how we respond to that gospel in grateful service. And Paul transitions from the indicative to the imperative in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, when he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We are called to respond in an appropriate manner to the grace of the gospel that we have received. Colossians 3, we see a similar paradigm going on where Paul says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Set your minds on the things that are above. If God in Christ, through the Spirit, has raised and seated us in the heavenly places, then we should respond and act accordingly. Part of the reason why we as Christians need the gospel just as much as, as unbelievers do is because if, if gratitude serves as one of the, the chief motivations for the Christian life, again, gratitude for what? Well, gratitude for the gospel. If we aren't constantly hearing the gospel, we're going to forget what we are called to be grateful for. And so the gospel is what gives wind in the sails of this motivation of gratitude for us as we seek to obey our God. Well, what's the next motivation that we see here in, in our catechism? In question answer 86. Yeah, we see assurance. We see one motivation just before that. Praise, yes, right. So that he might be praised through us. Or you could think of this as, as the glory of God. Now, of course, through our, we don't add to God's glory uh, through our good works, but rather, as the Catechism says, uh, that he, um, he is praised through us, or he glorifies himself through us. We reflect his glory to those around us. Now, part of the reason why Christ gave the keys of the kingdom to the church, and particularly that second key, the key of, of Christian discipline, discipline towards repentance, is because God cares about his reputation here on earth. And thus he calls his church to, to exercise this, this second key. It's interesting, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2, Paul uh, speaks to this Corinthian church, and he, he tells them that you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. In one sense, you know, Paul is saying, you Corinthians are, are, are an advertisement for, uh, for this budding church, for Christianity, for um, God's greatness and glory. And so God desires our praise. He desires um, 
that we reflect his glory to, to those around us through, yes, our imperfect good works that he produces in us through his spirit. You know, boys and girls, you uh, all uh, have a last name, and your last ma- name signifies that you are you were born into a family. You did not choose your family. You were born into your family, and you represent your family when you go to school, when you go to a friend's house, when anywhere you go, how you speak, how you act, you represent your family. Well, so it is with the family of God. Uh, we've been given God's name in, in, in the waters of baptism. We've been identified with the covenant community of God, and thus we are called to represent him well uh, to those with whom we, we interact. And so God's praise and God's glory is another, another motivation that we have uh, to do good works. Well, the next motivation, which has already been alluded to, is assurance. Assurance. So we have, uh, we're motivated to do good for the sake of our assurance. Now, Jesus says, and he tells us through the use of that illustration, that you will know a tree by its fruit. Meaning if a tree produces diseased fruit, then you know it's a bad tree. If uh, a tree produces good fruit, you know that it's a healthy tree. So here we learn that one of the ways in which we can be assured that we are children of God, that we have the Spirit residing within us, is by the good works, the good fruit that are produced from us. Now, this shouldn't be the primary place that we look to to find our assurance. The primary place we look to are the objective promises of God, which exist outside of us, outside of our Christian experience. However, as a secondary means of assurance, we do look to uh, the good works that are, that are spirit wrought within our lives. Uh, therefore, as we seek to imperfectly obey God as he reveals himself to us in his law, we are assured more and more that we really are children of God. Or to put it in, in the language of, of Paul in Colossians chapter 3, the more we seek the things that are above, the more we set our minds on the things that are above, the more we are assured that we really do or we really have been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And so assurance, assurance is a motivation that we have for doing good. Now what's the last motivation that question answer uh, uh, 86 addresses? Exactly, witness, witness. Their neighbors might be won, uh, won over to Christ. Just before the passage that we read in Titus 2, uh, uh, Titus chapter uh, 2, verses 9 through 10, Paul instructs the bondservants. And he says, Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So Paul is telling these servants that they are to be submissive. They are to work hard. They are to respect uh, their masters with the end goal of adorning, beautifying the doctrine of God our Savior. That's what we do when we live a life of good works. We adorn. We adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in the eyes of our neighbors and those around us. Uh, you can think of Jesus' words in John 17 when 
he says that the Christian church will know that uh, that we are uh, the Christian church by their love for one another. All people will know that that I that is to say Jesus is the Son of God. So Jesus is saying that it's through our love for one another that the world will know that Jesus is the Son of God. Or in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says uh, that, that uh, people will see our good works and glorify God who is in heaven. Now when we hear this, when we read this, this doesn't mean that our good works save people. It's a very important clarification to make. Our, our good works do not save people. The good works of Jesus saves people. We call people not to trust in us, our experience, our good works, our piety, our morality. We, we point people to Christ, to his objective work that occurred in history. In fact, we already confess this in Heidelberg 65. Remember, boys and girls, where does faith come from? The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts by not our good works, but by the preaching of the Holy Gospel. So we are saved through that, that preaching of the Holy Gospel as the Spirit makes it effective. However, our good works serve as a testimony, a witness to that Gospel. It serves as a platform by which we can sow Gospel seed. It's still the Gospel seed that needs to enter people's hearts, but our good works can serve as that platform by which that seed is sown. Or again, to use the words of Titus 2.10, we can either adorn or muddy the doctrine of our God and Savior in the eyes of others. Now, of course, in question answer 86 here, uh, the catechism isn't being exhaustive. Uh, no doubt we could think of, of other motivations for why we should do good works. But these are, these are some great, uh, great motivations for why we should do good works as those who are freely justified, not by our works, but by the works of Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf. Next week, we're going to look at, at what, what, is the, what is a good work? What is the definition of a, a good work? Uh, 